This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Innsmithing Year End Fight. The Kegos. Gaming David Lynch. And the Phantom Time Hypothesis. Everyone remembers their first trip to the island of Alamarha. You mean that strange, conspiracy-ridden island off the coast of North Africa, known for its lax regulations and mysteriously authoritarian government? Uh, I thought it was in the Mediterranean. Didn't everyone? Atlas Games, the publisher of Feng Shui and Unknown Armies, is at it again with a brand new Kickstarter. This time it's a new edition of Over the Edge, the legendary role-playing game of weird urban danger. Jonathan Tweed is back at the keys, inviting us to join him in creating unique unorthodox characters ready to get into all kinds of trouble. It's the same Alamarha you always knew, only this time it's completely different. If rampant New Age occultism, gangs of baboons, twisted assassins, and mad scientists in a modern-day setting of weirdness and menace tickle your fancy, this is the Kickstarter for you. Over the Edge is now kickstarting, and you can make your pledge at atlas-games.com slash kickstartote. Offer open to humans and tulpas. Tulpas before pledging, ensure your credit card is valid and not part of the illusion. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive welcome us to the friendly confines of the Gaming Hut. But here in the Gaming Hut, it looks like we've got some warehouse diagrams laid out on the battle map instead of a dungeon, and all the miniatures have got machine guns. This is... Is this awesome, or is this anti-climax? That's our question. When you put the climactic battle in the coda, is it okay to have the FBI come and blow up Innsmouth? Robin, I presume that uh, since the standard answer is uh, no, the player character should always be the center of all major action, that we are answering yes with a but, or no with an and. Well, the question is not, is it acceptable, because... It's role-playing, and so that means sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't. In this case, I think we'd both say mostly not. But there are times uh, when it is acceptable because uh, there are genre examples like Shadow Over Innsmouth where the physical overcoming of the bad guys is not the main set piece at the end. So in that case, the set piece is one guy escaping an entire town, and mm-hmm. uh, it would be wildly out of genre, or rather, it would be a Robert E. Howard story <laughs> if the one <laughs> yeah. guy turned around and killed everybody in the town and had the big uh, fight with them. And uh, even in different uh, genres of role-playing, players will have different expectations of when they can and can't uh, get away with uh, sending in reinforcements or having the other, uh, you know, the authorities come in and, and mop up the bad guys and it will vary from group to group and person to person within each group. I know certainly in my own group there are, uh, you know, there's a player who always wants to not have a fight. And uh, it in part that I think is your training is what you played early on and how deadly uh, fighting was in certain uh, sort of classic game systems. And if you came of age in those systems, it's like, well, 
it's very dangerous to get into a fight. You've got to be smart and, and certain rules that tell you not to get into fights that you can possibly not <laughs> and get into. Like, and I know us and we're not smart. Yes. Uh, whereas, of course, uh, other games, the whole point is that, you know, that it's, it's uh, sacrilege to, to duck the big fight at the end because, you know, the fight is the reward. That's the whole thing. That's what you're there for. That's what everything is leading up to. And uh, uh, so, for example, in an F20 game, um, you're there for the fight. So having the, the players... Uh, want to just calling the king's man to go and, and mop up the dungeon full of orcs. It's like, well, that's that's your job. So the question then is, if it is ever acceptable to uh, have the big uh, mop up in the coda, uh, when is it acceptable and why? And I think we've already hinted at one thing, which is that there has to be some other big exciting climax to which the actual mop up is then the uh, you know, it deserves to be just sort of a throwaway thing because you've already had the big fun thing happen. Right. The other thing is that there is a question of control that the players will have is if they've gone to all the trouble to go into Innsmouth and identify it as a bad place and to escape and they go to the FBI and the Navy and they say Innsmouth is full of badness and the FBI and the Navy are like, we'll take care of it. No problem. A lot of it depends on are the players comfortable in allowing that to happen and do they believe that the FBI and Navy in game are competent to wipe out Innsmouth? In Lovecraft's story, obviously, they were at least competent to knock out the surface of Innsmouth, but the Deep One City remains beautiful and serene below the waves and even the uh, submarines weren't able to uh, destroy it. So your player characters may say, if you got, if you want something done right, you got to do it yourself. We have to hijack a ballistic missile submarine and launch nuclear torpedoes at Innsmouth. And that's the only way we're going to know that it got done right. And yeah, we, we can call an admiral and have him do it, but he'll screw it up or Congress will get involved and say, you can't nuke Boston. And, uh, then there's going to be all kinds of, uh, of problems. So but some of it is, is going to be down to the player's degree of control and how much the GM offers a mix of, I guess, realism and reward for telling the authorities because you know, in theory, you're, you know, a bunch of book dealers or, or psychic experimenters or something. You should actually, actually not be, you know, doing SEAL Team 6 impressions on, uh, Mythos compounds. You should leave that to the actual SEAL Team 6. But in, uh, you know, the sort of the fictive world of the game, you, you know, you know that you're the only people on earth who can take on the Mythos. And so you have to sort of balance those demands of fiction, demands of genre and demands of realism all uh, together. And like you say, any one, not only any one group may have a different answer, any one player may have a different answer. But once your group and your players have reached a consensus, that consensus is going to differ game master to game master, table to table, you know, campaign to campaign. Right. And as you suggest that as GM, if you want them to decide a particular way, you can nudge them that way. So if you portray the uh, J. Edgar Hoover as a uh, reliable uh, fighter of the mythos, uh, that uh, gives them that option. But if you decide instead that they should, uh, you know... That he looks you, awful pop-eyed and moist. Yeah. You you let them buy all those machine guns for a reason. Mm-hmm. So if you portray him as untrustworthy or, you know, more likely to scoop him up and then send him off to the, uh, the medical experiment ward, and then that'll be more trouble down the line, you can sort of nudge uh, the players in one uh, direction or another. Uh, of course, that's the play- the GM... Uh, not imposing a desire, sort of, uh, elbowing, uh, them in a particular direction. You might choose to do that elbowing, uh, one way or the other because you see that there's a split in the group and that most of the group 
want the control of doing the fight themselves. And there's a, a couple of members of the group who are more like, ah, my knee hurts. And so then you, uh, you know, in that case, you give those reluctant players reason to uh, decide that, oh, oh, well, yeah, I guess we'll have to go in uh, anyway. Or conversely, you know, most of the group wants to, like, hand this over to the authorities. And so you could then, in reaction to that, uh, allay the concerns of the uh, the couple of uh, players who want to go in and fight that, oh, no, this is unnecessary and too deadly. And, you know, as a neurasthenic librarian, you're not uh, ready for this. So then you decide to portray uh, the authorities as... Uh, reliable and that way you're sort of creating group harmony by by roping in the stragglers in toward uh, one direction now there's also another just super practical concern which is pacing so if you've had you know if you're three and a half hours into a four-hour session and uh, you now have a choice between well can i extend the whole scenario next week to be the big battle against the the bad guys and then have and sort of an end point and something happened. Okay. That'll be fine. Versus, well, you know, uh, we're not, this is the last game for the summer or it's a convention game. And so, uh, if you are running out of time, you may indeed want to hand wave the ending. And that may mean that you are in the amount of time you have left. Something really super exciting has to happen now, this second, even if you're not ready for the, final mop up and then mm-hmm. find a way to make the, because that was exciting and you had the thing drop in and there was the big moment and they, you know, uh, if they're all lying there bleeding after a, a, a small fight with the bad guys and, uh, then they, they, uh, struggle to the phone booth and call the FBI and then the, the planes start coming overhead, uh, and rescue them. That can also be, exciting yeah. uh, and not a cheat. Right. I have found in my own experience, and again, we just said table to table is the question, but in my own experience, if you made the players earn that phone call to the NSA or the FBI or the uh, uh, Air Force or whoever, they don't mind, you know, you know, lying back and tending their wounds as they see the Black Hawk helicopters come over the ridge and hear the sound of the missiles go off. They're, they actually kind of enjoy that because that gives them a little video game moment, I think. And again, don't draw it out. Don't make it like they have to sit there and watch this thing for hours and hours, just montage it. And then say at the end, you know, um, uh, Captain Danvers, uh, comes up to you and says, that was good work you did. We think we got them all. And you're like, we think we got, what does that mean? And then that will (laughs) let you, um, uh, you know, key off if you want to run a sequel or if you want to run, they have to break into the uh, FBI's medical laboratory and kill all the specimens or they have to do whatever. And you can create a little bit of a, a feeling, but give them a genuine sense of, yeah, we did good here. Uh, you know, the, the forces of order have reasserted themselves no matter how briefly and contingently. And we got to watch stuff blow up. And, you know, if the player characters were, you know, if you sort of gauge that tension, they'll be happy to, to lie back and watch stuff blow up for a little bit. I mean, don't again, make it an hour of game time, make it maybe five or 10 minutes of game time tops. But if it's the last five or 10 minutes, that, that makes a great, Sort of a, a, a veil out, a, a last moment. The, they're all lined up at the fountain in Ocean's Eleven watching, you know, instead of the water go up and down, they're watching the Predator missiles go up and down. And that's just as fun. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. That uh, once you've decided that, uh, whether for pacing reasons or realism or anything that we've already mentioned, that it is okay to have the player activity end with calling in reinforcements if they earn it, meaning if it is, if there's a matter of some suspense as to whether they can 
contact whoever it is uh, to come in and, and bring in the airstrike, and they pay some sort of price or cost uh, for that, uh, then that can seem climactic. And so, you know, if you're just going back to the Holiday Inn and opening a bag of Cheetos and then calling them on your cell phone, that's an anticlimax. Mm-hmm. But, you know, if you get into your hotel room and you're, uh, you know, you have to set up your uh, security perimeter to make sure you're not being observed and they're uh, up in the vent, you see a crawling eye and you have to get up in the vent and kill the thing up in the vent uh, before you then finally make the call. Well, then uh, you've had a, a big moment that, that made it seem like, you know, you didn't just hand off the, the task to somebody else, but that you nearly got uh, snuffed out or nearly failed. Uh, but then, you know, that by finally overcoming whatever that last obstacle is to making the call, uh, then that feels satisfying. And of course, in shadows uh, over in his mouth, escaping the town is, is the equivalent of that. Mm-hmm. The other thing that you can possibly do, uh, in addition to making, you know, surviving to make the call a price, uh, have a, a monster present, they make the call, but they are immediately counter battery fire, right? By saying the word Innsmouth over a, a phone line, they've attracted the etheric guardian. And so the conspiracy now sends a wave of bad guys after them and they have to survive the consequences of making the call. Even if they, even if, you know, sort of chronologically, it's like, we already made the call. The Navy's on their way. You guys are screwed. Um, they still have to survive the consequences of making that call. And that can be another uh, thing as opposed to an interdiction attempt, a sort of punishment, counter battery, problem solving attempt, especially if one of the people that, you know, shows up to kill him is a shape shifting lizard man or something. And they're like, oh, he'll just impersonate us and then call the Navy back and say, oh, sorry, it was just us being crazy. You should probably take us into, you know, a, a black prison and never release us. That's on me. And then so there are no, we can't let that happen. And so to sort of preserve the integrity of the message or, um, uh, even just preserve their own lives, even though they've done the the right thing by making the call, they now have to survive the right decision. That can be a fun uh, change up to do. Right. And there's a, a third timing variation you can do on that, which is they make the call, the airstrikes come in, they return home, and they are home waiting for them are the deep ones who didn't get killed, right? Mm-hmm. You're, you're stealing the, uh, the henchmen are still alive bit from uh, uh, Diamonds Are Forever. Mm-hmm. And so it's like you've got one last uh, struggle at the end uh, as they come after, you know, the, the survivors of the airstrike uh, come after you so that you've still got a, a sense of, of uh, climax uh, rather than just, uh, you know, delegation. Yeah, that's another that's another great possibility. And you can delay that, you know, uh, retribution until even a later adventure if you want to. You know, you make the call, you have your 10 minutes of, well, thank goodness that's over. We're done. Everyone goes home. Maybe the next scenario is something else. The next scenario is something else. But at some point, it's the guys who escaped. It's the the Innsmouthians who are on the road with um, uh, bootlegging trucks. And they've all like, well, we know who dropped the dime on us. Let's go kill him as revenge. And then you have that sort of um, uh, Rosa Klebb in From Russia With Love or Jaws in um, uh, in, in whichever. That, that, that henchman shows up uh, moment, like you say. But it can be its own scenario. And then that can create a... How many more of these hit teams are out there slash how effective was the government question that starts the the ball rolling after everyone's had that moment of joy, then you can undercut it, but you undercut it much later as opposed to right immediately in the in the scenario right and again, it all comes down to just gauging the players and if they seem to be perfectly satisfied to just return to the holiday in and open their bag of cheetos, it's like well if if 
this is a week where you just don't have to try that hard. <laughs> Cheetos are tasty, but I'm, I'm worried Cheetos we're going to lose the tasty. Doritos sponsorship of the gaming hut. Well, you know, th- their sponsorship is uh, uh, purely nominal. pretty symbolic <laughs> at this point. Yes. So I think we want to bring in the Cheetos people and, and have a Well, they're probably the same company. And, but and at any rate, are we digressing, Ken? I, I think, think we digressing. may be uh, digressing into snack food comparison. And at game and at podcasts, you know what that means. That means next segment, man. Exactly. Next segment. More action. In the 1960s, the CIA hunted Yeti in Tibet, built aircraft that touched the edge of space, and experimented on mind control. But there's more to that story. In the 1960s, the FBI infiltrated occult movements, wiretapped congressmen, and winked at the mafia. Yeah, but there's more to that story. In the 1960s, the Marines invaded Cambodia, the Navy listened to the Pacific Deeps, and the Air Force covered up UFOs. Oh boy, is there more to that story. Those stories all touched the surface of the secret world, the poisonous, unnatural world of the Cthulhu mythos. A government program named Majestic tries to weaponize the unnatural. A government program named Delta Green tries to destroy the unnatural. In the fall of Delta Green, you play the agents of Delta Green, caught between your oath to America and your duty to humanity, caught between a world on fire and the icy cold of other dimensions. Written by Kenneth Hyde, The Fall of Delta Green adapts Arc Dream Publishing's Delta Green, the role-playing game, to the award-winning Gumshoe Engine. The Fall of Delta Green is a standalone game of standing alone against inevitable destruction. Delta Green falls in 1970. The world falls shortly thereafter. The Fall of Delta Green, available for pre-order now in the Pelgrane Press store. It's Delta Green. It's the 1960s. In Gumshoe, what are you waiting for? The end of the world? The glow of candlelight and the sound of uh, mooing cattle on the other side of the uh, hill tell us that we have once more gone into the pre-technological confines of the History Hut. And this time we're going uh, at the behest of uh, Patreon backer Jake, who asks the following. What dire secret did the Cagos hide that made them have to partition themselves from the rest of French society? And uh, this implies uh, that it was their idea to be partitioned. Yeah. But I think history perhaps suggests otherwise. So, Ken, who were the Cagos? And this is uh, C. A-G-O-T-S, which is one of many names that this persecuted minority group uh, was known by. Yeah, the um, the Cagos were a bunch of people, and we don't know if they were an ethnic minority. People didn't seem to indicate that they were an ethnic minority. They weren't Jews. They didn't have a different religion. They worshipped the same at the same churches. They just had to go in through the tiny door, not the good door. It just seems like it's almost like a caste situation, which is very, very unusual in uh, even in medieval France. Um, but it seems more like the sort of untouchables in India or the um, uh, Burakaman in Japan, where because of some weird fluke, the descendants of this one batch of families are considered unclean and bad. And uh, they, we know that they are mentioned back at about a thousand AD, which means that it may go back farther than that. Because as, um, uh, as you might guess, 
records of who's not allowed in church, while um, uh, probably very comprehensive at the time, are not the kind of thing that you keep around uh, for several hundred years. So they do seem to be restricted to trades, again, like a caste group. So uh, they were rope makers a lot of times or butchers, which sort of ties in with the uh, Muslim notion that if you engage in tanning, you're unclean. And so that's why tanneries in Muslim cities have to be outside the city um, over near the cemetery. Right. And that's similar to Asian outgroups where, you know, the, right. the, the butchers are unclean the same way that Martinians But the other are. thing that Kagos were traditionally is carpenters. Right. And carpenters are not just clean, they're sacred, right? Jesus was a carpenter. So... They, there's sort of some weird stuff going on here. Um, anyway, the larger point being that uh, they could only go in during s- secret doors or special doors. In, in, into church. They could only go th- into right, church. Yeah, they they, they um, couldn't marry outside the Cagos. They couldn't go into taverns. They couldn't use a public fountain. They would have to have a special fountain. Um, they would not allow to touch any food uh, or work with livestock or enter um, uh, bakeries or granaries or anywhere food might be stored. So, again, it's this contamination notion. Um, sometimes they would have to wear special costumes. And in some places, they would have a symbol, a web-footed symbol attached to it, like a duck foot. Um, they uh, would have special cups for the uh, Eucharist, even if they were allowed to take the Eucharist, or the Eucharist would be given to them on the end of a long pole, and they um, uh, wouldn't be allowed to do it. Yeah, and so sometimes you no got one, a spoon, sometimes you just got a stick. Yeah, and no one really knows what's the story about the Cagos. Um, the, some people said that they began as lepers. Uh, some people said that they um, uh, were descended of Arabs uh, who conquered Spain and were uh, questionable. Um, that maybe ties into that tanning thing. Uh, but the descriptions are all over the map that they might be super blonde. They might be uh, darker skin. They might be thin. They might be fat. There, there's no sort of standard uh stereotypical Cagot depiction the way that there was for Jews at the time. Right. It's said that uh, they Africans. had their own culture, though not language or religion, except yeah. there's no surviving evidence of what that was. Mm-hmm. Uh, because, of course, they're they're the persecuted minority. They don't get to leave uh, records of uh, who they were. And, uh, uh, and so that uh, if that's the case, we don't know what that meant. And so uh, in the, the real world, this seems like an example of societal need to have uh, outcasts to look down upon and to uh, uh, persecute and feel superior to and, and to uh, project uh, all of the senses of, of evil and bane onto. And since uh, there weren't uh, any obvious uh, different ethnic groups or religions in this case that, uh, oh, well, we'll just... Uh, those guys look kind of shifty over there, and I don't know if I admire their woodworking. Oh, the okay, you guys, the are, are the unclean ones. Yeah. So, so no one really knows um, what the what the word means. Even um, I'm kind of fond personally of something that uh, derives it from the notion of dogs of the Goths, ka goat, right? And so the um, uh, the when the Visigoths invaded Spain. Um, they were like, ah, oh, we're the top dogs, we're in charge. And then, of course, they got tumped on their butt by the Moors, and so all the local Spaniards hated on the Goths because they'd been so uppity. Another possibility uh, that someone suggests is that they were carpenters who built all the cathedrals uh, during the first big wave of Romanesque cathedral construction during the pilgrimage to St. James of Compostela, and they got too big for their britches, and so everyone got mad at them. This founders on the fact that 
rich bourgeois people don't usually turn out to be hated and despised, <laughs> even, again, no. in medieval France. No, they, they're the ones looking for someone to, to hate and despise, not the other yeah. way around. So I'm not sure I'd buy that theory, but I thought I'd just toss it out. I mean, we, we literally have no way of knowing. And the Cago odium, uh, I guess you could call it, goes down to the 19th century. Elizabeth Gaskell is wandering around Spain and France in the 18th uh, 60s, I think. And she writes a thing about, goodness me, look at all these, uh, cagos that people hate. Uh, one rumor about the cagos is they don't have earlobes. So they, uh, maybe have that weird genetic fluke going on. And that might just be because they're forced to marry in their own groups. And so you wind up with some birth defects and, and that situation. So it might be a post hoc ergo propter hoc situation. But anyway, explaining the cagos, it's crazy. Uh, we can't do it. I mean, we can do it because Historians can't do it, but yes. we are fortunately podcasters, and therefore we outrank historians. Yes. Once we once we enter the land of make up, we can do what we want. Uh-huh. Um, now, exactly. uh, the question sort of suggests that they have a, a sinister and terrible secret They're, that they are hiding from the rest of the world, and they have decided uh, to make themselves outcasts in order to protect it. Um, the thing that I would want to do there is make sure that it feels weird to make these underdogs... Uh, sort of villainous or deserving of their fate. So you have to... I mean, I guess the way that you could play it that way to to play to the spirit of Jake's question is all the player characters are Kagos. Yes. And they know that they have a, a dire secret and they have to sort of put up with this sort of odium in order to protect it. And so you're not playing modern-day investigators of the Kagos. You're either playing modern-day secret heirs to the Kagos or you're playing... Cagos in a medieval game of some sort, a, a, an F20 game or a, um, Ars Magica type situation where you're in medieval Europe or, as I say, Victorian Europe. And you know that all, all the spitting and odium that, that comes at you, that's all well and good because you have to protect this, uh, secret of this power and the outsiders aren't worthy of it because look how mean they are. Right. So it may be so that, that you, could work. uh, have this sort of, uh, you've taken on, this sort of uh, ritual chaos that really the, you know, all these prohibitions that you can't use a public fountain or uh, hold a cabaret, that these are uh, are now being enforced by a broader society. But originally, these are things that you agreed to take on in order right. to uh, gain the mystical energy that you needed in order to preserve the world from uh, whatever it is that's going to uh, manifest if you don't continue to suffer, that you've taken on the sufferings of the world. I uh, mean, hence- here's the possibility, right? It would be, we, there is a there is a belief that the Holy Grail is in Spain. It's on the other end of Spain than the Cagos, but, you know, let's not worry about that right now. Um, and maybe the Cagos are the guardians of the Grail. And the reason that they can't um, be part of society is because they have to take on Jesus's role as suffering unjustly for other, other people's sins because they drank from the Grail. And so... They are going to be, you know, uh, persecuted and, and maltreated and people are going to throw things at them just like Jesus. And it's the grail that has caused this to happen. And like you say, it's a gas and it may have been one that the first Cagot, you know, Jean Cagot back in uh, 999 AD or whenever said, yes, I accept this for me and all my children um, in the name of the grail. Or it may just be a, a symptom of the grail that once you drink it, you're so spiritually pure that you can't. Uh, stand up for yourself and you can't do anything that would ever make anyone else uh, harmed. And so, of course, people being bullies and monsters, they take advantage of that. Right. And uh, that part part of being 
regarded as as pathetic or unclean, of course, is part of your uh, sacred trust in protecting the grail from anyone who might come and take it. Because, of mm-hmm. course, this is the uh, medieval era. People have uh, preconceptions. And so they expect the grail to be in a vast castle made out of pearl or, you know, on a remote island uh, guarded by... Uh, by, by uh, sylphs and nymphs or, or something. And so the idea that it's just, uh, you know, buried underneath the, uh, the, the slaughtering uh, slab at, at the local butchers, that it's just in this crummy area where no one even thinks to go, right? All, all of the shiny knights coming in are just going to, you know, they're maybe going to kick the cagos if they get in their way, but they're not going to think that these uh, poor bedraggled uh, wretches are the ones who, who hold the grail. So it's also part of that, uh, the same misdirect that uh, leads people to think that uh, the grail is on the other side of Spain, uh, that mm-hmm. y- you have to be uh, humble and humbled in order to be, to protect the grail without giving into the temptation to uh, hand it over to the temporal powers who are going to uh, misuse uh, it and defile it. Right. And so your story is either... Um, some outsider wants the grail, like you say, maybe a knight, maybe, you know, um, uh, the Moors, if you're setting it during the Reconquista, maybe it's the French Revolution who's like, we have to, you know, end, we're here to end all your persecution and suffering in the name of reason. And also, if we find the Holy Grail, we're going to destroy it because that's what we do to relics. And so maybe you've got to, you know, fight the French Revolution who is out there trying to, you know, sort of do good your life out of being a, a wretched refuse. Um, but you know that if they find the grail, it's bad news. You might be protecting the grail from any sort of person, or it might be the sort of standard, um, you know, sort of Jedi slash Harry Potter situation where, oh, no, there's a dark cago. There's a guy who's using grail power for badness, just like, you know, even Jesus picks one bad guy in his, in his, um, uh, disciples. So out of every 12 cagos, every so often there's a bad cago and he's going to try and use dark grail energy to uh, say, you know what? I hate everyone who bullies me. I'm going to kill them all with my dark grail power. And you have to sort of hunt him around through medieval Europe, uh, you know, sort of like hunting down Darth Vader, except again, medieval times. Right. Well, now that we've uh, once again, given away where the grail is. Yes. Always. For for us to escape uh, the, the, through a separate door, not the real door. Uh, take our take our Eucharist spoons with us and see what lies on the other side. Werewolves of Dacia? They are the descendants of the other son, uh, Romulus's twin That sounds fabulous. Where can I learn more? In Volume 1 of The Best of Phoenix, now available in PDF at DriveThruRPG. That must mean that all three volumes of The Best of Phoenix are available separately, or in a value-conscious omnibus edition. When you're typing it into the search engine, you're typing F-E-N-I-X. 
and what you get when you type that is the best of Sweden's much-vaunted magazine devoted to role-playing and gamer-friendly reviews. Including a metric oodle of articles by yours truly. They use the metric oodle in Sweden, right? Indeed they do, Ken, and in Sweden by law, a metric oodle must contain such features as... Fallen Gods. RunePunk Steam Quests. Lamb Chop Love Songs. And the comic strip adventures of lazy beer-loving Bernard the Barbarian. All brought to you by the expert editorial hands of Tova and Anders Gilbring. Not biologically related. But related by their love of role-playing. That's the best of Phoenix Volumes 1 to 3. The first of many gaming wonders to come from Askfagelm. Ask for Askfagelm by name. And don't forget, that's F-E-N-I-X. And remember, that's in English, not in Swedish. In English, not Swedish. Protect the show from fatal time anomalies alongside such finely calibrated Patreon backers as... Aryan Poutsma. Josh Borlace. Jeff Dean. Drew Eichels. And Daniel Markwig. It's time once again to ask Ken and Robin, so let's ask Ken and Robin. Patreon backer Jacques de Villiers asks Ken and Robin, Gaming David Lynch, Twin Peaks... I suspect he asked a longer question that has been boiled down by our efficient podcast boiler to that essence. So, Robin, how does one, and I suppose the implication is, would we game David Lynch and specifically the Twin Peaks universe? So, uh, Twin Peaks uh, is uh, one of the quintessential examples of an existential mystery where there is an investigator, there's an investigation, and... In the uh, original series, there's a murder investigation, and the, the investigators are are uh, police officials, local police, and an FBI agent. But what is really being investigated uh, through that is the very nature of existence and what is real and what is not real. And in Twin Peaks The Return, of course, that is turned up to 11. The very uh, nature of reality is something that uh, comes into question and... Uh, there are uh, multiple realities that our investigator winds up uh, skipping through, uh, only to find a, a greater and more terrifying question uh, at the end. So the first thing I would do is uh, go back and listen to episode 163 of this podcast, where we talk about existential mysteries in general. Ken, do you want to sort of briefly uh, talk about existential mystery and how you turn that into a gaming experience? I mean, the very basic approach is that the existential mystery is a mystery in which you are discovering answers, but they're not necessarily the answers that you're asking, or if they are there, the answers are on such a large scale that they do not seem to apply directly, but somehow the, the curlicues of the narrative apply them anyway. So you're sort of looking at, um, I heart Huckabees is the one that I always think of as the standard, but there's a lot of other examples of this inherent vice that sort of, you know, the, the gold standard ones. Um, and then of course, obviously Twin Peaks, uh, began as a sort of procedural set in a soap opera and, uh, eventually became a purely existential mystery in that literally by the end of the return, uh, the crime that Dale Cooper is investigating is the crime of the problem of evil, right? He's investigating theodicy. He's not even investigating Laura Palmer necessarily. Uh, but, but the, the nature of evil and, and where is it uh, located and what caused it? Right. And, and can it be undone? Right. And that's, and that's sort of very much the existential, um, uh, uh, detective question is given that the world is disordered, do we embrace it or do we fix it? And can it be fixed if we wanted to do that thing? And usually the answer is no. So first GM tip, start sort of normal. 
uh-huh. uh, with with an apparently uh, accessible mystery because it takes a while before uh, you realize that Bob the killer is a, a possessing demon. It's not just a a person who has killed Laura Palmer. In fact, in the European version of Twin Peaks, it is just one of the normal characters who turns out to have killed her. Um, and uh, and then slowly start to weave in the surreal elements. Now, you probably want to do it less slowly than the original series did, just because gamers, <laughs> they, they want to have the genre elements uh, crop up and sort of ground them in where things are. Uh, and so you probably want to start indicating a little earlier than the original show did that there's something uh, supernatural or reality-bending about uh, the situation, and you can sort of uh, spin out the mystery. The other thing, though, that you'd want to do to do Twin Peaks specifically is that, as you suggest, it was a procedural but also a soap opera. So I would suggest a sort of a troop-style play where the players control uh, at least two sets of characters— so there's the uh, investigators, the uh, FBI agent and the local police, and, you know, maybe you might have a civilian who's helping with the case. And then uh, you have possibly scenes where you play the people in the life of the, the murder victim, the equivalent of the Palmer family. I assume you're not literally just going to recapitulate the actual events of the show because that would be ridiculous a, a, a head trip in its own way um so you're equivalent of the palmer family and also then perhaps a third set of characters who are the other eccentric figures in the in the town who uh are possibly in the universe of suspects uh at least at first and before you discover the whole bob thing uh but then uh, are also just doing their own sort of wiggy eccentric things and so you know that would bring in the the town doctor and the log lady and uh, the various uh, uh, gorgeous uh, vapid teens getting into trouble. Now, I, before we sort of continue on this, I do want to sort of take a sidebar to mention a couple of games. There was a game that came out, you know, way back before there was New Twin Peaks by John Fithian, among others, um, called Heaven and Earth that took place in a small town with weird mysteries and et cetera. And it was a very sort of a standardy a role-playing game in the sense of the mechanics were all pretty standard. There's now, I think, a third edition that came out a few years ago. And that might be something if what you want to do is play a sort of a standard role-playing game, but with aspects of weirdness in a small town. Um, at least look at how Fivian et al. handled it in Heaven and Earth. Obviously, there's, you know, plenty of other examining. I mean, Tales from the Loop is kind of that in that it's small town weirdness. It's just that it's aimed in sort of a different direction. And then there's a card game that I played at New Mexican that was even more fun and weird. It's a one session build the mystery and play through it game. So you're sort of, you're surreal. You're, you can let your surrealist freak flag fly a little more. It's by a guy named Miles Gabarit called Tall Pines. And, uh, that was a really great game too. But. We are talking about playing it out um, at the table with whatever your your favorite engine is. Um, Robin, do you think that Gumshoe makes sense for a game like this, in which, by definition, discovering the answer is either uh, a side question or is actively deleterious to atmosphere? Uh, I think it would work perfectly because any it doesn't matter what the mystery is in Gumshoe as long as there are uh, as long as you find a thing that leads you on to another thing, and that's even in the return. Again and again, you see them finding clues that then mm-hmm. lead them forward and pull them deeper into the case. So and it's just that the 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 uh, the clues either 
only advance the story, but don't fit together into a coherent whole, or they advance the story, but they advance the story through a world of sur- of increasing surreal uh, experience. Uh, and so it, the clue actually just acts as a little, uh, like a mine car to carry you into the next um, uh, element of the theme park, not so much as a part of a mystery qua, but a part of a narrative. Right. So there's even a part where, you know, they find a, a, a cylinder with a document in it, and then they have to decode it and its coordinates, and then they go, oh, well, it's this spot in the woods, we have to be there. And then you get to that spot, and everything goes completely uh, cuckoo. Um, and so... Uh, I think that, uh, in a way, sort of a mix of almost sort of switching back and forth between gumshoe and drama system, where you play a little while as the detectives in the case advancing the mystery, and then you take a break to be the uh, beautiful teenagers in the town, and then uh, you the, take another break locals. to play the uh, older generation or the sort of weirdos, or maybe the weirdos are just the... Um, uh, you know, the log lady and the doctor, they might just be played by the weirdos are all NPCs but, yeah. so that the, um, the great master gets to do all the silly voices. Yeah. And then, uh, you know, you periodically pause, uh, to play a song on Spotify when they all go to the club and, uh, go to this mm-hmm. extremely weirdly, uh, well-booked club in the middle of nowhere mm-hmm. <laughs> in the mountains. Well, you know, <laughs> it is right over the border. Yes, so. exactly. Um, I, I think that the other thing that you sort of have to keep in mind is that, I mean, in many games, uh, there, uh, the, the destination is not the journey. Um, the journey is the whole point. And that certainly you can make that argument more or less for many role play games. But I think in this sort of a game, you really need to know that play, the players need to know that they're booking a, a travelogue. They're, they're going through this world and seeing all this crazy stuff. And if they get to where they thought they were going, that's totally not the point. And if people are all bought into that, I mean, that's really the the first bit, as you say, we're going to do this game and it's not going to be about who killed Laura Palmer. Or if it is, it sort of is, but it sort of isn't. And or we're going to do this game and it's not going to be about is there pirate treasure at the bottom of the lake. Um, and so you sort of let them know that the things that seem like they would be the clues or the the questions, the mystery in another game, they'll still be a mystery. They'll still be acting uh, as motivators for the characters, but they're not the experience. They're not what you're at the table to do. And so the difference between a core activity, which is experience something surreal and try to come to terms with it, and the story is farther diffused in a game like this than it is in, say, Dungeons & Dragons, where the core activity is kill monsters and get their stuff. Oh, look at that. That's also, you know, my character's goal. So it's it's working out really well for me. Um, and th- and it, th- that sort of disjunction between, and I don't want to say the surface level and the deep level, because it's all surface level, for God's sake. It's a role-playing game. But the 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 experience and the um, uh, way that you mediate that experience they're going to be much different than they than they are in a standard sort of role playing game, and that's the biggest hurdle. And you can, if you can get over that, if you've built the kind of trust at your table that uh, a good GM should have been doing, um, players will put up with an awful lot as long as it's fun and interesting and goofy, and they have something to chew on. Um, and you give them the the things that they want as people at the table that night, as opposed to what in theory their character wants to accomplish. Because obviously in Twin Peaks, every character, every good character wants to bring the murderer of Laura Palmer to justice. And it's just as clear that if that happens, it will be a happy accident. Right. And so 
Uh, I suggested earlier that things start out normal and then slowly reveal that they're weird, but you do need to either uh, get buy-in from everybody that you're playing an existential mystery or be so entirely certain that when they find out what you're doing that they'll all be on board with it uh, and that it's it's going to work because it would be frustrating for a lot of people. And so my other piece of advice, of course, is to get the Twin Peaks soundtrack. And yeah. at, at a key moment, you know, assuming you haven't explained what it is that you're doing, uh, you know, at a key moment, play the Audrey's Dance cut for them. And uh, if they all get super excited about that, when they set their eyes wide and they realize what's going on, uh, then you've got them. And uh, if not, you may need to uh, retreat somewhat from the the uh, full surrealism because there are some players uh, who would delight in the fact that the all they ever find is that the mystery is even weirder than they thought, uh, whereas other uh, players are going to go, well, I want definitive answers, and also, can we hit something? So uh, the the big number one thing, piece of advice, is to, you know, don't play a David Lynch game for a group that is anything other than 100% up for a David Lynch game. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't, don't play a David Lynch game for um, uh, Steve Bochco characters or players. The, um, uh, the other thing is that if you are presenting it as a part of a ongoing campaign, that you can get away with geographically confining it, especially if your game already has sort of a weird sensibility. It's like, oh, this one town, this one place, Twin Peaks, Erie, Indiana, Hawkins, wherever – yeah, that's where all the weird stuff happens. And you guys went into it and came out the other side. And that was your little, that was your theme park. That was your moment. You've experienced the existential truths that exist in this town, but they don't have to follow you for the rest of the game. The whole rest of the game doesn't have to be about, you know, digging into weird radio broadcasts or, um, uh, figuring out, you know, uh, uh who's running uh, ketamine to the teen center. You can just go off and do your regular game and fight, you know, vampires or gangsters in Chicago, just fine. Chicago's not Twin Peaks. But if you feel like the players are missing a little bit, you can hit them with a little sense that that surrealism is following them, but it doesn't have to take over the whole game the way that it would if you're just playing straight up. We're playing Twin Peaks, deep dive into um, uh, a code that no one, including the uh, cryptographer, understands. Uh, right. And uh, once we're turning things over to the cryptographer, I think it's time for us to head through this exciting commercial message to see what segment might lie on the other side. He thought he was out of the game. He claimed he had nothing more to say about the eldritch secrets of the national security state. But old Delta Green hands don't get to retire. They just go dormant. So now, after years in a remote safe house, in an isolated lumber port, he's back. John Scott Tynes is writing Delta Green again. A mere few days remain in the Kickstarter campaign for Delta Green, The Labyrinth, from Arc Dream Publishing. This all-new collection of organizations presents ready-made sources of allies, enemies, mysteries, and surprises for your Delta Green campaign. 
Each group has its own story arc, progressing through three stages as it encounters Delta Green agents and the evils they fight. Some groups corrode, wither, and die. Others gain hideous strength and uncover profound new horrors. The project has funded. Terrible stretch goals have been unlocked. By the time this alert reaches your trembling ears, an entire other book by Dennis Dittweiler on the Yithians may well be among them. Experience the Times effect before his minders whisk him away from us again. Find Delta Green The Labyrinth on Kickstarter before the campaign closes on July 31st. It's time once more to enter the most mysterious confines of that ill-defined of huts. Uh, let's see, I can't... Uh, yeah, it's all very vague, but... Oh, wait a minute, there. There in the corner, there's the Nordic alien and the gray alien. They're uh, uh, drinking kombucha together. And, uh, oh, oh, yeah, there's the window, and through the window I can hear the alien big cat screeching on the moors. Okay, I feel oriented in this most disoriented of huts. I'm in the Liptony hut, and this time, at the behest of Patreon backer Alexandria Perman, we are going to examine the phantom time hypothesis. And as uh, weirdo theories go, this one is relatively recent. It begins in 1991 with a gentleman named... Herbert Illig, uh, which is, uh, if you're going to think up the name of somebody who is going to develop a phantom time hypothesis, Herbert Illig is a pretty good name. So, Ken, tell us about um, uh, Herr Illig. Well, I mean, there's not a lot to say about I- Illig himself. He began as a Vilikovskian, one of the people who believes that uh, all of the accepted archaeological chronology of the past was jumbled up by a series of improbable astronomical happenings. And uh, in uh, Vilikovsky's case, at least a species-wide case of global amnesia, which is a big ask, among other I, things. I hate it when that happens. But uh, Vilikovsky was a Freudian, and we all know uh, what that will do to you. Um, <laughs> and Il is a Vilikovskian, which is like the next stage down. Um, and so he came up with his own version of the past is not what you thought it was, in that it didn't happen when you thought it was and didn't mean what you thought it was, because he believed that the Dark Ages didn't exist, that it was a conspiracy. That's that it was pretty a dark if they weren't even there. Yeah. I mean, how much darker could it be that Charlemagne it was not just a cop, but was non-existent? was a story, was like King Arthur. It was just someone that people made up to explain why they got to be Holy Roman Emperor and you didn't. The argument being that Roman Emperor Otto III and Pope Sylvester, and then when someone said, what about the Byzantines, said, oh yeah, fine, and the Byzantines, <laughs> all got together and conspired to make sure that they got to be uh, Emperor, Pope, and Emperor, respectively, in the magic year of 1000 A.D., because once you get to be emperor then, you get to say, well, look how emperor we are. We're here at the end times, and we're the emperor, so we must be the best. It's like renumbering Superman at, at number one. Exactly. It's very much like retconning the old Middle Ages, and the notion being that the years from 614 AD to 911 were all made up. And the argument, uh, such as it is, hinges <laughs> on... The weird nonsense of the calendar, which is that the calendar was created by uh, the church, obviously, to determine when Easter was, and that they set their Easter on a different date at the Council of Nicaea than the Julian calendar, and that's what caused eventually the uh, reforms of uh, Pope Gregory back in 1582. But his argument was, hold on, smart guys, 
if you set the calendar in the Council of Nicaea and you're supposed to be working for the Julian calendar, that means the 300 years between Julius and Nicaea got shuffled away somewhere. And where did they go? And his argument is basically because those 300 years are missing. Therefore, that explains why the uh, 300 years that are missing that he wanted to be missing were missing. <laughs> I don't even think it made sense in German, much less <laughs> when I try to do it. Certainly, there are very, very few authentic uh, references to uh, to the Dark Ages, because guess what? The reason they're called the Dark Ages is lots of people were illiterate. Um, the argument that Romanesque architecture, which was being built in the 8th and 9th and 10th century, was very, very Roman. So surely there must be immediate continuity, not several hundred years of nothing. And people, and, what other podcast episode has a Romanesque empire theme callback in it? I, I, exactly. This is the only one where you can get that. The only one. You can't get that from other podcasts. Um, and at the time that he was, uh, let, let us charitably say postulating as opposed to making up <laughs> his theory. There was, uh, as someone who makes things up, I, I think there's more discipline in that, frankly, but right. continue. <laughs> There, there, there is a, um, uh, that there was not the same volume of carbon 14 data and, um, even astro, astro historical data that there is now. Um, and so he was like, we don't have data, data for this. Um, I think that the best argument possible is that the guy who, uh, made up the calendar was a guy named, uh, Joseph Justice Scaliger. He established the science of historiography and when you write a book called De Emendatione Temporum, which is what Scalinger did, and it's called The Improvement of Time, I think that's a prima facie case right there that something's up in the Renaissance. Obviously, nothing is up in the Renaissance. Don't at me. But the larger <laughs> point being that the dates of the uh, things that supposedly happened during the Phantom Time, like, say, the Battle of Tours, were actually the Battle of uh, Chalons, just rewritten to be about Muslims instead of Huns. And so... The whole bit where the Arabs invade Europe apparently didn't happen to him. I'm not sure what he, how he thought that the Arabs suddenly woke up in charge of half of Spain in 1000 AD works. I don't think he ever thought about the fact that the, we have pretty good records for the uh, Emirate of Cordoba and they don't say anything about, you know, just agreeing to pretend that uh, Charlemagne existed. That wasn't their bit. And as you may note, uh, the uh, Emirate of Cordoba and also the Abbasid Caliphates and the other Caliphate Fatimids uh, of the era, uh, they didn't care that it was 1000 because for them it wasn't 1000. <laughs> it was a whole different year. So why would they be playing along? Many questions should be asked of Herbert Elling, including are you all right and do you need a lie down? Yes. <laughs> because like, like, like the main body of Velikovskinism, this, you know, far be it for me, but this seems like this is, <laughs> what problem is this solving? <laughs> yeah. Well, I will tell you, um, there is an even better guy, a even better guy than this guy, who I think, I want to say he's a mathematician. Um, I do not promise that this is true, but his name is Anatoly Fomenko. And he believes that all of human history started in 800 AD and that most historical events took place in the Middle Ages. So between like, say, a thousand and fifteen hundred and that we just keep rewriting the same thing in the past. So, uh, Rome never fell, Constantinople fell, and we just pretended that there was a Rome, right? Right. So, and the reason that that is, is because real history treats Russia as a backwater. And 
as a Russian, he objects to that. So he would rather have the new chronology um, uh, be fully uh, about Russia and or the Byzantine Empire. And so uh, Fomenko has written like a big old bunch of books on it. I think I have two or three of them um, about the new chronology and the sort of notion that history as recorded is a bunch of uh, rhyming overwritings. And Fomenko's basic argument, although he goes into eclipses uh, a lot, um, is that since we only have written records that are provably dated back to about uh, uh, 1000 AD, nothing happened before that, that people just wrote down uh, something and that that's the beginning of time. A bold statement, but I don't think, again, um, uh, historically accepted. Right. Uh, but Fomenko is the, uh, I mean, he takes Herbert Illig and says, you know, I'll see your missing 300 years and uh, raise you the entire past. Um, uh, and so Fomenko is, is, the, is the pure quill good stuff, I think. Right. Um, and so uh, at the point in the segment where we go, well, let's take this and make up some crazy genre stuff about it. We don't even have to do that because Philip K. Dick got to that first uh, because the uh, Fomenko, uh, it is still the Roman Empire and history is just on pause and is being constantly rewritten thing is uh, intrinsic to uh, uh, Valus. And also to Radio Free Albemuth, which is an early, earlier version of Valus that is so different that it is essentially its own separate thing that the events of Radio Free Albemuth become a movie that they go to watch during uh, Valus. And so it is uh, one of a number of overtly or literally Gnostic belief systems that try to overwrite uh, the brain of the Philip K. Dick character or one of the several Philip K. Dick uh, characters. Uh, because uh, it has that uh, sense of a very obsessively detailed, uh, completely absurd alternate reality that, uh, if you buy into it, uh, then seems uh, uh, very credible because it's its own closed system where, you know, if you keep, uh, like any uh, system where you just keep bending the evidence to fit what it is that you're trying to achieve, uh, it, it has its own... Uh, sort of dopamine satisfaction to it. Yeah. And the, and the notion of, you know, uh, uh, Velikovsky in, entitled one of his books, Mankind in Amnesia, to argue that uh, Venus hitting the earth uh, is like being hit on the head in a bad 30s movie, <laughs> and we just forgot. And the notion that some extra force, and let's uh, let's just say uh, ultra-terrestrials or, or whoever, abducted history for 300 years and then we have missing time. And so we're filling it in with screen memories and it's not owls, it's Charlemagne. And that I think is a more fun notion than the notion that, um, uh, that Illig or Fomenko have. Um, although Fomenko, I think is a little bit of that, but the notion that we are subconsciously trying to figure out what happened and we build something that sounds plausible that, you know, sort of ties into not only my own uh, madness dossier, but to Ash, by Mary Gentle, which is where I stole the whole notion of a history that was true and got rewritten and bits of it are still popping around. So that's a fun idea is that the missing time is not missing in the sense that it never happened. It's missing in the sense that someone stole it and we don't know what they did with it. And once you start digging around in Charlemagne's, you know, uh, uh, historical and physical remains, you might find evidence of ultra terrestrial involvement. And that's the fun stuff. Right. And it's something you could also steal for a Yellow King game because the concept of that is that there's a uh, a play that is rewriting reality. Well, reality includes not only the present, but the past so that you could have a situation where, uh, you know, somebody uh, gloms on to the whole 
a phantom time idea and they become obsessed with it. And because they have also been overwritten by the, the Carcosa effect, by the yellow sign, that in fact, their rewriting of history is actually introducing the amnesia, that it is, they believe that they are discovering an alternate past when in fact they start to create an alternate past. And then, of course, if the past is being rewritten under you um, and history is changing, uh, that is uh, makes it much more difficult to stage an investigation because the, the things that you knew yesterday about history are different than the things that you know today. And so the question is then whether the player characters can still fix on what the original history is or if their understanding of history is also being uh, rewritten and uh, they probably want the original history back because it has the advantage of making some semblance of sense. Right. Um, the, <laughs> the original history is at least the one that they already learned, so they don't have to go back and rebuy all those points. Yeah, and it has cause and effect <laughs> and stuff like that in it. That's always yeah, good. And, and good things like that. But yeah, so I, I think that the, I mean, the, the, the notion of fighting for the history that we have, even if it's a crazy screen memory or a, a, a non crazy screen memory, a rational screen memory makes sense because again, uh, that's sort of the, the notion of the whole, uh, anti Cthulhu, uh, gaming, uh, is that yes, the real world is a chaotic nightmare. The whole job of us is to prevent anyone from encountering the real world. So if you discovered that Philip K. Dick's Vallis theory was true or that Fomenko's new chronology was true and that, um, uh, the Scythians, Huns, Goths, Bulgars, Pechenegs, uh, were all the same people in the sense of it was the same invasion, just, uh, repeated in, uh, history books, uh, that that's, uh, maybe that is the actual way the world worked, but it's not the way the world can work. And so it's your job to prevent this or history from peeking its nose out and, and stomp on it. Right. Uh, you could possibly, you could work in a museum and as you, Oh no, the artifacts are changing again. We're going to have to send up our, our, our anti-illig squad, uh, once more mm-hmm. to find out who it is, who's, uh, perpetuating the psychic effect backwards in time and, uh, yeah. uh, altering the, the time stream that way so that it's not a time machine or an alternate time frame, but that, uh, that this, uh, corrosive thought pattern is rippling back into the past and, and changing it. And so, uh, one of the reasons to be a heroic archaeologist is to make sure that you have the artifacts and evidence that proves that history really happened as we understand it. Because if you're not, careful if you don't have enough of those items the ability of these uh anomalous brains to uh make uh the past entirely fungible uh, then reaches a, a threshold level at, at which point you're possibly uh you know you wake up the next day in twin peaks <laughs> speaking of callbacks speaking of callbacks and uh as uh and Adelie Fomenko teaches us when you're in a callback it's a sign that uh you just have to wait and the same thing will happen again. And in this case, you just have to wait, and this podcast will happen again. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrin Press. Askfagelm. Arc Dream. Dork Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Simple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question-asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Keep us stocked with anti-Deep One torpedoes in lockstep with such Patreon backers as... Derek McMullen. Jake Moss. Yuri Horneman. Martin Runquist. 
and Phil Bailey. Snag your Ken and Robin apparel and other Aerodite merchandise at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Now available, start with Earth! On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time, and once again, we will talk about stuff.